Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your Bible. Uh, we thank you for people who uh, write books to help us understand uh, your Bible. And we thank you also for the opportunity to have preaching uh, from your word. We pray that you would help me to make uh, your word simple. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us in the listening of your word. Speak to us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Mark chapter 12, verses uh, 13 to 17, which was read to us. Um, and it's, it's quite, if you like, um, helpful for me to go through this again. I was speaking to Joel and I said, I'd like to look at this. Um, and I said, only because I have preached it at Smithfield, but also I think it's becoming more and more current. And he agreed. He said, the election is a, a, around in a very short time. And it makes us think about some biblical principles when it comes to thinking about government. Um, and the question, should we pay taxes? Well, I don't think there's anyone over here that sits around and says, I'd love to pay more taxes. And I think Australia is very much pushing towards the mindset of we should pay nothing, but we should have the government pay for everything. And uh, I think this will be a, a good reminder to balance that discussion. But if you're over 50 um, and you're, you're moving towards that last quartile of life, uh, every now and then you have to read something and it just frightens you a little bit. The other day I read what the definition of insanity was by Albert Einstein. And it goes something like this. It says, it's doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a totally different outcome. And, um, and I guess sometimes it's scary when you see yourself in that, isn't it? But the Jewish rulers that we're going to look at today, uh, they were like that, weren't they? they? They were doing the same thing over and over again and hoping that they'll get a different outcome. Uh, in, this section really starts in Mark 11. And in Mark 11:27, we're told the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders come to Jesus with a question. And they come with a supposedly tricky question that they think they'll be able to cause Jesus to somehow make an error, somehow say something wrong. And then immediately after our Bible reading, in the next section, the Sadducees are at Jesus, and they're also asking questions about the resurrection. And so Mark has not got every single question that was asked. He's just got representative questions, and he's got these three sections of, if you like, tricky questions. Um, and, and they all come with the same spirit. They come with the spirit of trying to trick Jesus. Uh, they, they want to get him tongue-tied in some way. They hope that he will fall in some way. Uh, and it's an effort to make sure they can get him wrong uh, in something. You would think they would give up. They came in waves over and over again. And every time they asked their tricky questions, Jesus handled them quite easily and explained to them quite easily their folly by just quoting most often scripture or explaining to them directly uh, what God's uh, principles were in the matter. Surely this stubbornness, this madness, is something that we really can't learn anything from. But I'd like to put it to you that today I think we can learn three lessons at least uh, from this text. And the first lesson I'd like us to learn is that Jesus unites people together. For those of us who are Christians, we know Jesus unites people, don't we? 
we, we know that there's a unity of fellowship amongst us once we become Christians. It, it doesn't matter what race uh, you are from. It doesn't matter what culture you've had. It doesn't matter your economical situation or your political bias. It doesn't matter what your um, inbuilt family feuds might be even. Somehow when the gospel does a work in us, somehow when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we not only come to love Jesus and consider him, uh, if you like, our greatest interest, our greatest joy, but we also somehow get attracted to these people who are nothing like us. We, we somehow start to like people who are, come from a different race, a different economical background, a different educational background. Uh, even if we've been fighting with them in our families for years, somehow we now become friends. This was true of the 12 disciples, wasn't it? They all came from totally different backgrounds. Uh, there were Jews there. Matthew was a tax collector. They should have been wanting to you know, fight each other till the cows come home, but they became friends and they followed Jesus. And it's true of the church after Jesus' resurrection as well. We had tax collectors, farmers, fishermen. We had people who were business people, doctors, even Pharisees. They all came into the church and they all acted as one. The greatest division in the church, or the greatest division before the church started, was the fact that there were Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other. Once the gospel was preached, even Jews and Gentiles came together and cohabited in the church. Luke, a Gentile doctor, in Acts, he records it this way, in Acts 2 of the church. He says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This early church, Luke says, was of one accord. And they worshipped together, they ate together, they had different languages, they came from all different backgrounds, and despite all their differences, they were united. Our text this morning, though, is talking about a very, very different unity. It's not speaking of this unity at all. In verse 13, let me read verse 13. Then they sent to him some Pharisees and Herodians to catch him in his words. Now, in Mark 11, we were told, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to trap Jesus. In Mark 11, when these three groups came together, almost every commentator says, there's something strange going on here. How could all these three groups happen to be at the temple at the same time? How could all these three groups just happen to be near Jesus at the same time? How could all these three groups actually have only one question that they want to bring to Jesus at the same time? And instantly they'll all say, it's a setup. This is not something that just happened by coincidence. It's a setup. And they say it's most likely a group that's been sent by the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin are the political, if you like, gathering of Jews. It was the ruling body. You've got to remember, Rome was here in charge of everything, and Rome allowed the Jews to form their own little government. 
And this little government could make policy on religious matters, they could make policy on some social matters, and even a few civil matters under Roman rule. And they were made up of many parties. They had the Sadducee party, they had the Pharisee party, they had scribes, they had elders, they had priests. And, and they were very similar to our parliament, really. We've got Labour, we've got Liberal, we've got the Greens, we've got Nationals, we've got the Hunting Parties, we've got the Christian Party. And, and whenever we listen to Question Time or whenever we hear anything about Parliament, they never seem to agree. Well, it was no different for the Sanhedrin. They could never agree either. On big issues and on little issues, they would constantly be fighting. Yet, on this matter, they all became one that they could pick a group of chief priests, of elders and scribes to go to trap Jesus. And in verse 13 of our text, we're told that Pharisees and Herodians were sent to him. They didn't just accidentally come upon him. This was not just a spontaneous question that came off the top of their heads. They were deliberately sent to Jesus. And the inference once again is that they were sent by the Sanhedrin. These were experts. These were tough nuts. These were debaters. These were people who we would call rent an argument. And they would go to argue and argue till they got you to say something wrong. And the word, the Greek word, to trap or to catch Jesus in his own words, the secular use is used mainly for hunting. And the idea is that you go and you hunt. And the hunt is not going and shooting something. It's more like digging a ditch and putting traps inside the ditch that cause a person to fall onto their own weight. And when they fall with their own weight onto something, maybe a sharp uh, post or something like that, they kill themselves with their own weight falling upon something. And that's the idea here. They're trying to trap Jesus with his own words. They're enticing him to say something politically incorrect. They're enticing him to say something offensive that can get people worked up to not like him and to hate him in some way. Now what's so special? Why does Mark specially mention the Pharisees and the Herodians? Why couldn't he have just said, and another bunch of Jews? Or why couldn't he have just said, the Sanhedrin sent a few more people, and these people just keep coming? Well, it was particularly important because the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. They hated each other's guts, is the bottom line. The Pharisees, their name comes from the term or the idea of being separate. They thought any form of Gentile rule was a bad thing. To have the Romans in charge of them was terrible. They thought they had to be a nation under God, not a nation under Rome in any way. Any influence of Gentile behavior on them was a terrible thing. Jews needed to separate. And the way they separated from Gentile influence was to bring into strict obedience the law of God. And so they would go to the written law in the Old Testament and they would make sure in every way they kept it. They would do their best to even make up a few laws and a few traditions. And these traditions and laws would help them keep the laws even better. And so they would say, let's try and keep these laws. And their laws focused on things like fasting, 
on Sabbath observance, all the outside things, things you could actually see. Things like tithing, things like washing of utensils, things like sharing meals. Who, who can you eat with? Who can't you eat with? What kind of food can you eat? Was the person found at McDonald's eating bacon or something like that? We want to check that they did everything exactly right. Marriage, divorce, all those things, they would be nitpickers. And they thought that if they even were really rigid and really careful to keep the word of God so closely, that God would then be obligated to send his Messiah because everything is made right. Everything is made straight, and so God could send his Messiah. And then this Messiah would come, overthrow the Romans, and they would, he would establish his kingdom on the earth. The Herodians, they thought that was rubbish. They thought, that's never going to work. They thought the best way that anything's going to happen is if we are slightly more politically minded. We need to understand compromise a little. If we don't give in a little bit, we won't get a little bit was their mantra. They thought if they could become friends with the Romans, they would slowly and gently bring them around. They were Herodians because they were relatives or cousins or friends or somehow connected to Herod. And so they were linked with, if you like, the Roman rule. And if they could work from within, if they could somehow use their connections through Herod, they would somehow bring Rome around. So these guys, friends with Herod, they would go and they would wine and dine Herod and they could explain to Herod exactly what the Jews want and bring Herod around to see their way of thinking and eventually Herod would give the Jews a bit of room to move. They would then come across to the Sanhedrin and they would be a bit like them and they would drink with them and they would eat with them and they would entertain them and they would say, this is what Rome wants. If you just give a little then maybe we'll make sure there's peace between the two groups. They're like our modern lobbyists, aren't they? Making sure they're in the middle. You can't get to the parliament unless you get through them, and the parliament can't get to us unless they speak to these lobbyists who will get the message to us with great PR lines. They were totally opposed to separation. They wanted Roman rule, they wanted the Sanhedrin to work with them to make sure they could work together. They hated each other so much. The only way I can describe it is how Labour and Liberal treat each other now in the Parliament. If one person says something, you know the other person's going to oppose it no matter what. And they can never find a common point to agree. So these Pharisees and these Sadducees, the Pharisees and Herodians, come together and they ask one question that they agree on. Can I put it to you that they were planning this question for over a year? They were planning for this event for such a long time because in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, the Pharisees got so upset that in Mark chapter 3 verse 6 we're told, then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. This has been a long time coming. This collaboration has been simmering behind the scenes and today, or this day, was the day when the question was asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Shall we pay or shall we not pay? If Jesus said yes, we should pay. He was going to upset the Pharisees. He was going to upset all those who wanted to be separated from Roman rule. If Jesus said no, he was going to upset Caesar. He was going to upset Herod. He was going to upset the Herodians and possibly even be killed for it. On one side we had the group saying separate from Rome. On the other side we said join, join them and be part of them. Jesus and the gospel definitely unite Christians. There's no doubt about that. We know that in our own experience. But we also know in our experience that somehow unbelievers can come together and have a hatred towards the gospel and a hatred towards Jesus and a hatred towards his people. Even though they might disagree on politics amongst themselves, even though they don't support the same football team, even though they have different views on sex and sexual orientation, even though they have different economic backgrounds and different family biases, it is so uncanny that they still find a way to unite when it comes to opposition to Jesus and opposition to Christianity. The second lesson we learn is that Jesus, God wants us to honour our rulers. This is Jesus' message. They set the tra trap, they asked the question and look at his answer in verses 15 to 17. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Another futile attempt. It was insanity all over again. In a simple answer, Jesus answered them so profoundly that once again they got it wrong. And the answer was simple. Pay your taxes. This is the bad news from the pulpit this morning. When you pay your taxes, you're actually doing the right thing. Okay, this is what Jesus says, this is what the Bible says. This is exactly what Paul says. Paul says that the government is given to us to bring social cohesion. The government is given to us to actually make sure we're acting in some sort of connected way. They're like a glue for us. They keep us together. They put us on railway tracks to head in the same direction. We don't see that very often these days, I know. But nevertheless, that's exactly what they're there for and in their best abilities, that's what they're trying to do. Now, these Christians that Paul was writing to were in the middle of Rome. He writes to the Roman Christians in Romans 13 and they had no election. So they had no choice to say we elected these guys so we should submit to them. They just had thugs. They just had brute force. That was political coin in Roman in the Roman Empire. The bigger the thug you were, the more power you ended up with. And this is their government. And in that context, Paul says, Romans 13 verses 1 to 5, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, 
and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. He goes on, For rulers are a terror to good works, are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is a minister for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So Jesus acknowledges, and Paul acknowledges, don't, don't they, that there is a power, there is a government, there is, if you like, a place in society and an office for human beings to rule over other human beings. We might choose one party or the other party in our election, but no matter who gets elected, we have to have this underlying assumption that God has put them there. And we have to be submissive to them. And sometimes we disagree with their views, and sometimes we disagree with their methods. But if they're not calling us to disobedience in God, God calls us to obey them. Now I suspect we have no rebels in this congregation here this morning. I suspect that most of us are actually obedient to our government. So how can we get this wrong? And that's where this book has been so helpful to me. This book by Lutzer. He says this, this phrase, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, can be easily misunderstood. When we, when we understand them wrongly, we get it really badly wrong, like Nazi Germany did. And he says, the catch cry of governments is that this text is saying we need to separate state from the church. And it's quite true. Jesus is actually saying there are two realms of authority. There's the realm of the church and there is the realm of the state. But many countries, and I suspect even Australia and America, to some degree say we need to remove God, therefore, out of the state. We need to remove God out of all public life that God should be only in our private devotion and nowhere else. And we need to separate and forget God when we're talking about life in a country. And this was exactly what Hitler's catch cry was. He would say, render to Kaiser that which is Kaiser and render to God the things that are God's. And that's how he built his power base. Now, he didn't use that catch cry to brutally murder people, but he certainly used that catch cry to build his power base. And what he did was he never ever told people, don't go to church. He never ever told people, you shouldn't be part of a church. He himself confessed to be a Catholic, and even when he abandoned the faith, he said he supported positive Christianity. He said he doesn't want to interfere with what you do in the church, he doesn't want to interview, interfere with any of your doctrines. He says, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but just make sure the things you teach are in harmony with the good of the German people. His government even collected taxes and gave the ministers their salaries. And so the Lutheran pastors in Germany got their salaries from the government. And he was so boastful. 
he would say these Lutheran pastors are like cowering dogs and they'll do anything for me because I pay their salary. He so pushed that religion should be a private matter that he could continue to run the state with humanistic values and he could do whatever he wanted in the state. Eventually, he got too mad, I think, and he decided to scrub the state of all Christian convictions. He decided to get rid of Christian values in everything that was in German uh, state. He, he said, for instance, Christmas should be Yuletide. Easter should be the celebration of spring. He brought in Article 24 in their party platform, which gave liberty to all religious denominations, as long as they were not dangerous to the moral feeling of the state. You know, surprisingly, the Catholics and the Lutherans loved Hitler. They actually thought they gave, he gave them religious liberty. That they loved him because they, he allowed them to have the sphere of the church whilst he ruled in the state. And they thought he was pretty fair. Whilst he was moving in the background and he would gain more power, he would start imprisoning his opposition party, he would then start to make sure he would go after the church. And he actually said that there needs to be only one God. He says one God must dominate the other. And he started continuing to find every single opposition to him, whether he would imprison them or kill them. He would get rid of them. And then when he came to the church, he found two people opposing him. One guy's name was Martin Nimola. The other was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in 1934, Hitler said, I'll bring Niemöller in and I want to meet with him to try and resolve our differences. And he brought Niemöller in and he said, I just want peace. And we need to find a way where you can continue in your church serving and worshipping God. And I continue running Germany. And Niemöller said, that's fine. And Niemöller shook hands with him and said, everything's good. But on the way out, it just struck Niemöller that he had to make one point clear. And his point was this. He said, you said that I will take care of the German people. This is Hitler saying, I will take care of the German people. He says, but we too as Christians and churchmen have a responsibility to the German people. That responsibility was entrusted to us by God. Neither you nor anyone in this world has the power to take it away from us. You see, Niemöller understood that you just cannot let a state run rampant if it continually disobeys God's word and God's principles. And Hitler shook his hand and they left peaceably. And Niemöller actually thought he made a point. By the time he got home, the Gestapo turned up. They messed his house up. He and his church were repeatedly harassed. Supporters deserted him and pastors attacked him. And pastors came to him and said, for years we've been having people disagree over whether miracles are right or not. 
whether there was a virgin birth or not. And we sat down and argued over points of principle. And we found the best way to deal with things is to have private devotion, to have piety in the personal space. And we don't want to have all these arguments anymore about doctrine. We really don't want to have any arguments about moral right and moral wrong. What we want to do is preach the gospel and keep our faith private and our devotion vibrant personally. And eventually, God will bless us. He will turn Hitler around. And in fact, the whole country would eventually come around. We just need to have our private devotion. After the war, I mean, you know the rest of the story, Niemöller's in prison, Bonhoeffer's killed. After the war, one pastor writes this, and you'll find it in the book. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it. What could we do to stop it? From a railroad track behind our church, we could hear the train travelling through. We became disturbed later when we heard cries coming from the train. We knew they were carrying Jews like cattle in the train. Every week we dreaded the sound of the wheels and the screams that tormented us. So we began singing our hymns louder and louder and louder till we reached the top of our voices. Soon we did not hear the cries anymore. Years have passed. We do not talk about it anymore. But I hear the cries in my sleep. God forgive me and all those who call themselves Christians and yet did nothing to intervene. This text when it says render to Caesar that which is Caesar does not call us to just blindly accept everything that comes from our state. Can I ask you, what would you have done if you were in Nazi Germany at that time? Can I ask you, what should we do if there are 100,000 abortions every year in our country? And what should we do if legalization of same-sex marriages come about? And what should we do when this proud school program gets rolled out into every school where homosexuality is promoted? What do you think is the role of the church? At morning tea we can discuss it more. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I think the questions we've got to ask ourselves. The text does speak of two realms of authority, but it does not speak of removing God from the life of a country. It reminds us that we have leaders in our state, but the ultimate authority is God himself. And our last point, we are owned by God. And Jesus' answer was simple, wasn't it? It was what the kids learned this morning. He picked a coin and he said, have a look at the picture. And what would they have seen? They would have seen the picture of Tiberius Caesar. And below it would have been the words, son of the divine Augustus. Now, most of you probably know, all Roman emperors were sons, if you like, of gods. And when they died, they became gods. And so Augustus 
It means August One, really. It's not a name. It's a title that was given to the king before. And that meant someone respective or someone impressive, someone stately, someone important, lofty. And so a person, when they died, if they were the emperor, they became this king, this great god, if you like, who was stately and grand and majestic. And on the reverse side of the coin, the emperor, this is Tiberius Caesar, was called Pontiff Maxim, high priest. So can you picture what the Roman thought of their emperor? They thought that their emperor was the son of a god, soon to become a god. And then they thought he was a high priest, someone who could actually speak to the gods on behalf of them. They did not see the church and the state as two separate things. The church and the state were one thing for them. Their God was their king, and their king had the kingdom. There were no two institutions. There was only one institution. And so when they obeyed their king, they didn't just obey their king as a government. They obeyed their king and worshipped their king as if he was God. And the rank-and-file Roman citizen, when he looked at a coin and he saw Tiberius Caesar, he didn't think that was arrogance to put your face on a coin. He did not think that at all. He thought it was fact. This man is God. And so when Jesus says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render to God that which is God, can you see what Jesus is saying? That Caesar is not God. And you only render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. But God is the one who has ultimate authority. Now, let me apply that for Australia. We're a bit schizophrenic, aren't we? On the one hand, we turn to the government and we want them to save us from every single problem. A little child dies and it's the government's problem. A boat of people come to our country, it's the government problem. If, for instance, someone is unemployed, it's the government's problem. If something happens wrong in our schools, well, it's the government's problem. And the government needs to spend more to fix the problem. We need a Gonski reform. We need this. We need all these other things. Otherwise, these problems will never go away. The government has to fix it. It's not our problem. It's the government's problem. But on the other hand, we're quite a secular state. We actually feel there is no God. And we definitely don't think the government's our God. In fact, we think we are the God. We think the government really serves us. And we'll tell them what to do. Sarah and I moved out to Smithfield um, last year. And it was good news for us when we moved into the west of Sydney because we were told it's the most sought-after electorate. We were told that basically Labour and Liberal will pay anything to us just to get our votes. You know, we wanted the M4 slightly improved, they're going to do that for us. We wanted the M5 widened, they're going to do that as well. And just to keep us happy, we'll get an airport. We never even asked for that. Our votes are big dollars, and they're going to make sure we get those big dollars. They're going to make sure they tax people in Dremoyne, for instance, take your money and make sure it gets spent out at Smithfield for us. We only asked for reduced crime, but we got a wet and wild as well. 
We, we asked for reduced unemployment and we're going to get a new suburb built in Parramatta. It's wonderful. This is what democracy is, isn't it, for us? It's wonderful. We, we go to the l different parties and they say everyone needs to be taxed but the money needs to be spent out where? Smithfield. How good can it get? It's pork barrelling is what the term is, isn't it? But we know it's immoral, don't we? We're laughing because we know it's bribery. We know that it's nothing short of immoral activity to somehow suck us in to vote and vote for the wrong party. And eventually, if we can get the majority along to make a decision about something, well, it's going to save us. We're going to have utopia really on earth. It's going to be a wonderful place. And we know in our heart of hearts that if we actually push this argument far enough, one day the majority will bring us euthanasia. One day the majority will bring us free drugs in our streets. One day the majority will license prostitution in a way that it's not licensed today. And human slavery will be back on the table again and gambling will basically go on and on and on. And the very fabric of our society will be undermined by the majority itself. Majority does not always get things right, does it? And even in a country where we have all these liberties, there are times when the majority gets it wrong. As Christians, we're never to assume that the state has all authority. We're never to assume that even the majority get it right every time. Donald English says of this verse, he says it's an affirmation of the two realms of authority, but it's also a warning to us. And it's a warning to remind the state of a message that Christians alone can give. Only Christians will give this message. And the message is that ultimately it is God who reigns. And that all policies, all government policies should be worked out in relation to that. Whenever a government calls us to do something contradictory to the scriptures, we are to say no. And that's got to be a greater guiding principle in how we vote than what they can do for us financially. And sadly, I might have to knock back all the money for Smithfield and let my vote go where righteousness is. But Jesus is making a very clear point, isn't he? There's limits to how much authority Caesar and the government has. Caesar might put his stamp on a coin, but as we learn, Jesus has put his stamp on every human being. Wasn't that the reading of Genesis 1, 26-27? Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And then in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Did you notice verse 28? Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God rules over everything. His dominion is over us all. And even when he's made man, who's an instinctive ruler, 
Man only rules because God's made him that way. Man only exercises dominion because that's exactly the stamp that God has put on him. But he rules it in a way where he still reflects submission to God. And that was the design in creation when God said everything was very good. God owns us. I need to repeat that, not only for us, but we need to repeat that even when we go into our everyday life. Even Caesar, by the year 200 AD, had a little man standing behind him whenever he was making pronouncements. And the little man at the end of the pronouncements would say something like this, You're only a man. You know when the Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus, they tried to flatter Jesus. Do you remember those words? Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. They thought they were being smarty pants, didn't they? They thought they were buttering him up just to get him to make a mistake. But the reality is they said the most true statement they could have ever stated in the whole conversation. He was able to give them an answer that disappointed the Pharisees and he gave them an answer that disappointed the Herodians. He gave them an answer that was truth. And the truth is that our state has limited authority but God has ultimate sovereign authority over all our lives. May we render to God total obedience in our lives. And may this be true of us today. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you again for uh, the fact that you have made us in your image. Uh, we thank you for this great privilege. Uh, we don't know uh, what we've done to deserve something so wonderful in this. And the answer is we've done nothing. It's all of grace. It's all of mercy. And we thank you for this. And we pray that you will give us obedient hearts. We pray that even this morning we will submit in every way to you. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.